formulated to affirm our faith. And as we gather to worship the Lord this morning, I'd like us to recite a creed called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was, was actually written in 325 AD. It was at one of the first gatherings of bishops and, and leaders in uh, Nicaea. And I'm telling you this because it gives us a little bit of context as to why it was written. It was written around a time where the church was concerned about making sure that we were unified around a truth that we all hold to be true about God. And there were some beliefs at that time around Jesus, about, about who Jesus was. Was he truly both fully God and fully man? Or, or was he fully God and kind of, kind of like fully man, but not really fully man? All these things that play into our faith. And here's why it matters. We talked about this the last couple weeks. Only one who was fully God and fully man could perfectly atone for our sins, could provide a way for us to be with God again, to cover the wrath of God against sin. And so it's necessary. It's not like, hey, it's important. It's necessary that Jesus is who he says he was, that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And so when we recite creeds like this, it's not just some monotonous rote statement that we all uphold, but it's a very important statement that affirms what we believe, and that, that we all share in that belief together. That's what unifies us. It's not our preferences or our background or, or what part of the country we come from or, or any of that. It's what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ, who is the one that we're unified in. And so I'm going to invite us to recite the Nicene Creed together. There is, you know, a couple words that seem kind of out of context for us, words that meant something different long ago. One of those words is the Holy Catholic Church. Now, for you sitting in the rows of a Baptist church, you're saying, wait a minute, uh, Catholic, I thought this was a Baptist church. Well, Catholic means more of a universal nature. Catholic means the church across the world, the one whole church of God, the, the people of God under Jesus Christ. So don't confuse that necessarily with it being like a, a Roman Catholic church that, that, that we're aligning ourselves with beliefs that may not align with what we have thought we were believing here in the Baptist church. We're believing these ancient truths that the people of God have come along and affirmed together. And we have every reason to uphold and affirm the beliefs that are articulated in this Nicene Creed. So church, let's recite our faith together. Let's be unified. Let's come before the Lord in worship by saying this creed together as one church. Say it with me. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. 
And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Good morning, church. So Pastor Dan asked me if I had things to say about the Nicene Creed, and I said no, but I think I was lying. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, So as I was driving to church this morning, We've been talking a lot as a congregation about, like, what is worship, right? Like, what does it mean to worship the Lord? And I was trying to think of something that I could compare it to. And, like, honestly, the closest thing that I could think of was, like, a marriage, I think. and Or, like, a, a romantic, like, love relationship. And um, I'm, I'm married to Paul, right? And, like... Paul's in my relationship, like, he lives his life in a way that every day it tells me that he loves me, right? He doesn't have to necessarily, like, come in front of me and say, Nina, I love you. He does do that, but there are other things that he does throughout the day, throughout the week that show me that he loves me and that he's devoted to me. And, like, he's not necessarily musical, so he doesn't sing me songs, but at our wedding, I sang him a song. And so, like, that was a way that I could show him that I love him, right? And so when we come on Sunday morning and we sing these songs, like, God has showed us the ultimate love, the absolute ultimate love, like, even in this Nicene Creed, um, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again. Like, all of that was because he loved us. And so this morning, like, as we sing these songs, these are just one way that we get to show God how we love him. It's just one example as we're living out the rest of our week in a way to show God, like, God, we love you, we're devoted to you. Singing these songs should be like love songs back to the Lord, that it's just one medium by which we can come and show the Lord that we're devoted to him, we love him. Um, So, now that I said my two cents. Um, All right, join with me in singing, okay?
darkness we were waiting without hope and without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the
just thank you that you are the King of Kings and that we do get to praise you forever, not just here in this life, but in the one to come. It's going to be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, everyone around the throne singing that together. God, what a cool, awesome anchor for our hope to be tethered to. God, we just thank you that we can come before you and take communion because of what you did. Um, we thank you for Pastor Dan. We pray that you would anoint his mouth today, Lord. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. I was talking with a friend yesterday, and we were talking about this idea of time and uh, and just like how how rare it is for us to to have time to celebrate. Uh, kids, hang there for one second because we're about, oh, kids, you're dismissed. Never mind. <laughs> you're good. Go ahead. <laughs> See, now it's even the kids have to give me signals of what's going to happen in the service at what time. Like, kids, you're leading me, apparently. The sheep are leading the shepherd. Uh, and so we were talking about this idea of time, right? And, and, I mean, you think about time in our day and age. You think of how we think of time, how we treat time. Uh, time is, is a resource, but, but not necessarily something that we consider sacred and, and, and precious, right? I think we, we get so busy, we get to a place where we, we kind of hoard our time. We protect our time. No, that's, I'm not going to commit to doing that. I'm not going to show up there because it's my time. It's, it, it's for me. But I think if we learn something from God's people, the ancient Hebrews, we'd realize that time has always been, in God's eyes, a, a sacred place, a place set apart to be with God. I think I mentioned this months ago when we were talking about Sabbath, but when God created the seventh day, he blessed it. When God created the day, he blessed it and called it holy. Right? There's, a, there's a sacredness, a set-apartness to time that I think is lost in our current culture, in our day. And, and as, we, uh, as we come to the, the Lord's Supper, as we uh, have set apart, that, that when he instituted this time on the night that Jesus was betrayed and sent to the cross, God gave us a gift. He gave us the gift of time set apart to reflect on and to think of God's love for us. To think about not just his love for us, but the sacrifice he made on our behalf in sending his only son. To not just think about that sacrifice, but, but to consider the new life that God makes available to us through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And all of this is encapsulated in a time that God has set apart for us to remember and celebrate him. It, it's celebrated as we approach the Lord's table, the, the Lord's Supper. And we know this because it's something that Jesus invites his followers to, to do every time they celebrate together, every time they come to this table, right? Here at Trinity, we believe that, that this table, this space, the, this time in our service is a time that is specifically meant for those who have given their life to Christ, who have said yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him, to believe in him as the, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I want you to know that if that is not you, if you have not put your faith in Christ at this time, Please don't see this as a time of judgment or, or uh, of being less than in our service, in our time of worship. See it as a time to consider how God is at work in your life and what invitations he's putting on, on you. This time is still sacred and set apart for you as well. It just might be a different experience because God is speaking to you. 
He is reaching out to. He is desiring you to put your trust in him. And so I'd invite you to to use this time as a time of, of prayerful meditation and silence as we celebrate what God has done in gifting us this sacred time of the Lord's Supper. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples around the table. And this is the, this is the moment when Jesus has declared for us that this time is sacred. We're told that as, as they gathered, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and, and after he had taken the bread and broken it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we, in remembrance of Jesus, and in God's gift in sending us his son, do this, we take and eat of this in remembrance of him. And after the supper, Jesus also took the cup. And he speaks of this cup as if it's a symbol of the new covenant. Now, what I want us to understand is there is a relationship that God's talking about in this. That, that this cup symbolizes Christ's shed blood. What that means is the guilt uh, and the shame of all our sins are borne upon his back. He His shed blood paid the price for our sins. And so when Jesus gathered with his disciples, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of time that you've given us to remember and celebrate you, to to step back from the rush and the the hurry of life, to say no to obligation and receive your invitation to meet with you in this sacred time, a time not determined by the building or its design or its shape, but by your Spirit's presence with us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the the gift of new life we have in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection washes us clean, makes us holy, that we might have confidence to draw near to you, to your throne of grace. Lord, I pray that uh, in remembering you, we would have greater confidence in the forgiveness you give us, in the love you have for us, in the holiness that you have regenerated us in, the righteousness that we have been regenerated in, this new life, that we might walk by faith and confidence in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, in a few weeks, it's kind of crazy to think about it, we're going to be celebrating Easter. We're going to be uh, waking up early. If you have kids, you'll have kids looking for Easter eggs and candy and, and, and all that. But we'll be celebrating together on Sunday morning the resurrection of Jesus. We call it Resurrection Sunday. And it's this day that we remember that Jesus rose from the grave after defeating death on the cross. And in rising to life, we too celebrate this new life that we find in him. Now, in preparation for that, we've been taking these few weeks to, to kind of consider the, the darkness and the death that's all around us in this world, the, the darkness and death that Jesus overcame, the darkness and death that's a reality, a truth that's even in our hearts, my heart. And, and it may seem like a morbid practice. It may seem kind of uh, unusual to spend time thinking on this sort of thing, this, the, the the evil that's in this world, the sin that's a reality. But, but it's the most clear way for us to know the heart of God. Have you ever thought about that? The, the, the clearest way for us to know the heart of God is by considering basically the opposite of God, the, 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 the vacuum that, of God, the, the place where God is not present, the, in the, the evil and the darkness. See, at Christmas time, I think we like to celebrate the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, this, this baby in a manger, the one who was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But rather than, than, than seeing Jesus' birth as this moment where we come to know who God is, I think it's more likely that we understand more about the heart of God from the death of Jesus than it is the birth of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 4, John tells us that God is love. And the way he writes it, it's like, it's just like fact, you know? Uh, like, like gravity is a sure thing, right? The sun rises, the sun sets, God is love. Just a fact. It's there. God is love. But how can you, how can you know that God is love, right? How can we know? Like, how can we just say, okay, I, I believe it's true, because when we're younger, we believe it's true because our parents told us so or because the Bible tells us so. But how can I, how can you know that God is love? Well, is God like the wind where, where we never actually see it, but we know it's there because we see it blowing through the trees. We see the effects of the wind as it, as it blows branches over or as you feel the breeze running through your hair if you have hair. Now, I, I think God is better than the wind, right? Sure, I mean, he is like the wind. You see the effects of God in the world around you. You see the effect of God in lives changed, lives transformed. But more than just seeing the effects of God by being able to observe his, that he's been there, that he's done something, I think we can actually see and know God in the life and death of Jesus, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells us that God shows us his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you're like me, the first time, first few times that I read through this verse, I love this verse because it told me that while I'm still a sinner, God came for me. But I think it's easy for us to kind of read too quickly, read past this, but God manifests, he presents, he, he shows us his love. He makes it visible, tangible. It's not some subjective feeling. It's objective. In the life of Jesus, 
who was crucified on a Roman cross. See, Jesus' death does more than just atone for our sins, which is what we would typically talk about and say that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. But his death does more than that. His death tells us something of who God is. It reveals the character of God the Father. See, this season of the year in the life of the church is not meant to just be a time where we acknowledge the sin and brokenness that is real and present in our own lives. It's also a time for us to acknowledge, be aware of, and embrace the the magnitude, the greatness, the goodness of God. Resurrection Sunday is, is the culmination of God's mission to fix what's broken and also to show the world who he is. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. I'll read it. You can follow along. There's Bibles in, your, in the seat back in front of you. It'll be on the screen, or you can pull it out on your, your app or, uh, or on your, your smartphone or tablet, whatever works best for you. But, but let's read the Word of God together this morning. Let's hear what happens here in John chapter 3. John records for us these words from Jesus and then a bit of a narrative. He says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who reveals himself to us and that you have given us this revelation uh, in, in the scriptures, in your word. Lord, we, we thank you that you want us to know you. Help us to know you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning uh, is probably familiar to many of us, or many, many of you, but it, it, it follows on the conversation that Jesus is having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was, he was kind of trained up in, in the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and the law, and, and, and taking care of the, the religious practices within the church. But when he meets up with Nicodemus, Nicodemus tries this sense of flattery. He, he's seen the signs that Jesus can do, and he's like, oh, well, there's something interesting about this man. And so he comes to Jesus in the night and, and kind of attempts this little bit of flattery with Jesus. He says, you know, we, you must be from God, because look at all these signs that you can do, right? Well, this is, this is also the passage where Jesus famously says that the only way you can see and know the kingdom of God is if you were born again. Now, to be fair to Nicodemus, I think if any of us heard that, we would think in a similar way, how can, how can this be? That's Nicodemus's questions. How can these things be? How can, how can a man be born again? 
He even says, like, am I supposed to enter my mother's womb a second time? It's impossible. How, how, can these, how can these things be? See, I think Nicodemus is thinking about God and truth purely from an earthly perspective. He, he misunderstands what Jesus is saying. And it's easy for us, standing on this side of the, of the history of the, of the event, to kind of look back and make sense of it. But, but if you put yourself in Nicodemus' sho- shoes you too would probably feel confused by what Jesus is saying, right? You too would probably misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. See, the truth that Jesus is talking about is you, you, you can't know God just because of the signs that are performed, right? You, you can't know him just because of the effect of him being there. You can acknowledge that he's been there, that something has been there, but you can't truly know that it was God who did this very thing just by observing what happened. It would be like, um, it, it would be like saying you've seen the wind when in reality you're just seeing the impact of the wind. Make sense? You don't actually see the wind, you see the impact of the wind. See, only Jesus, only the Son of God and the Son of Man, the only the one who's sat in, in eternity next to the Father and also come to dwell among men, to tabernacle among the people of, of man in, in, in the form of man, can actually be that bridge, that gap between God, between deity and humanity, right? Only he can make God known. John tells us in John chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, we don't come to know God by having mountaintop experiences in our lives or, or in the lowest moments of our lives. We don't know God through having a sentimental experience in, in worship or by walking outside and watching the sun rise or the sun set. Only in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus has God chosen to reveal himself to us, to, to clearly and ultimately make himself known by reaching out from eternity and bridging that gap between our relationship with him, the gap that's been created by sin. Now, just for a moment of clarity, God may use these circumstances, these high moments in our lives, these low moments in our lives, these moments where God is stirring something in our hearts in, in, in worship. He may use those moments to reveal himself to us. But the reason why he can do that is because Jesus has first come and revealed himself to us as human beings. He's descended from heaven and ascends back to heaven. See, I think what we can learn from our passage here in John chapter 3 is that only in Jesus can we know God fully. Know him as love, know him as missional, and know him as a rescuer, a deliverer, right? See, the character of God's love is seen most clearly when we come to John chapter 3 verse 16. Arguably, this is one of the probably most well-known verses in the Bible, but We're not told in this verse the measure of God's love for us, but the manner in which he loved us. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world is not a statement that that, that measures how much God loved the world, but the manner in which he the manner in, in how he loved the world and the way in which he loved the world. See, when our kids were younger, we might say, How much does daddy love you? This much, right? Right, and you, you extend your hands, and, and then there's a competition. See who can spread their arms out further to show you know, who loves who more, right? 
That, that tells us something of the measure, the magnitude of God's love. And I think that there is some of that in this passage, but I think what we've missed out on, what we don't pay so much attention to, is it's not so much the measure of God's love, but the manner of God's love. That God's love is visible in seeing that it's in this way God has loved the world. When Tara and I um, were first married, we were living in Boston, and, uh, and, and we went on this walking chocolate tour of all the, like, the specialty chocolate shops that you can find in downtown Boston. Apparently, there's actually quite a few. It was, it was a few hours that we were walking around. Now, I'm not necessarily a lover of chocolate. I mean, let's not be foolish. I could eat chocolate, but, but I don't love it. It's not like I'm saying, hey, I would love to spend a Saturday afternoon walking a, a, a tour of specialty chocolate shops in Boston. But, but I went on that walking tour because I love Tara. Tara does love chocolate. She, she likes chocolate. For, so <laughs> this illustration worked a lot better in my head than as I'm talking about it out loud. So in a sense, for Dan so loved Tara that he went on a walking chocolate tour of Boston. This is how I love Tara. I went on a walking tour. Let's move on. God's plan to fix what is broken <laughs> is born from love. That we can see his love. This is how God loved the world. That, that he gave us his only son. Right? That he sent us his only son. This is telling us something of being visibly able to see God's love in Jesus coming to this earth with a purpose. Right? I, I want us to understand that. God's love is, you're not missing out on God's love because you don't feel it in the center of your heart. There are many of us who struggle to feel God's love in moments that are overwhelming and exhausting because there are so many emotions coming at us, right? There's so much in our history that make us feel unloved, and so we struggle to know God's love is personal and real and true in our hearts. And yet what I'm telling you is if you turn to John chapter 3, verse 16, you can see God's love for you. It's tangible. It's objective. It's real. That in Jesus coming to this earth, God reveals himself, his character of love for us. And God has this plan to, to fix what's broken in this world, but it comes from the very source of God's being, his character, his nature, which is love. God is love, right? I think uh, sometimes when we, when we read this verse, we say that God so loved the world. Yeah, Dan, that's the world. But, but if God listed the name of every single person, would it fit in our Bible? Would we be able to read this verse today? No. Specifically, God is saying that, that for God so loved you, for God so loved Dan, for God so loved Dan's parents, his grandparents, his neighbor. For God so loved that, that stranger, I don't even know their name, but I know that God loves them. Not only because God is love, but because God has shown us his love, that, that God didn't come to this world just to, just to show his love to those of us here in this room. His love is, is wide and deep. It's, it's big enough to embrace all those who would embrace, who, who, who he's, he's created. Whether they acknowledge it or not, God loves them. That's the kind of magnitude of God's love. See, love is the very nature of God. It's, it's who he is. 
God is love, and, and we see that love flow out of him in Jesus coming and dying on our behalf. Is that clear? Do we understand, like, this is not just a, a moment where we say, yeah, there's a man who, who did something great for us. This is this, a visible manifestation of the character of God, the nature of God, only seen through Jesus coming to this earth, only seen through the one who is both ascended and descended from heaven and, and dwelt among man. We see the very character of God there. See, we don't only see the character of God's love in sending Jesus. We also come to know that Jesus, or that God is, is missional. That, that God is reaching out, that God is extending, that God has a purpose. He's not some God who sits up in an ivory tower just waiting for us to kind of claw and grasp our way to him to kind of get tired of, of, of trying things on our own and finally come back to him, God is, is actively reaching out for you, waiting for you to take hold of his hand, waiting for you to take hold of the gift that he's extended to you. God is the main actor in this world. God's an initiator, right? God spoke and the world came into being. God created man. God provided for man in the garden. God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless Abraham, to bless the world through Abraham, that he was going to make him the father of many nations. God made a promise through David to provide a king who would sit upon the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever. God made these promises. God did these things. God didn't just make this promise and expect man to hold, uphold his end of the bargain to make sure it's done. God fulfilled these promises. God's the main actor in, in this world and in this life. And what I want you to understand is God is not passive. He's not patiently waiting for things to happen. God is intentional. He's missional. He's purposeful. God's reaching out and actively seeking us out from the very core of his being. This is not just something God does. This is who he is. Much like God is love, God is missional. In verse 17, John tells us that Jesus wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But in, in kind of stating this, this, this verse in the negative, we sometimes overlook the fact that Jesus was sent. Jesus was given a mission from the Father. Jesus is the representative of the king and becomes the king himself. He's the prince who becomes king over the kingdom that God has created, but he does it through that first step of being sent by the Father. So when the world meets this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God and the son of man, they're, they're meeting this representative of the king who's carrying out the purposes of the king, right? And how does this representative of the king carry out his purpose and communicate the, the king's love? Well, through his death. Through his obedience to the father, which looks like his death on the cross. In verse 14 and 15 of John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was sent with a purpose. That purpose is seen most clearly in his death. That, that purpose is articulated here when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. See, the story that Nicodemus would have been well aware of as a Pharisee 
is found in the history of Israel. It's recorded for us in the book of Numbers. We're told the story of how Israel, as they, as they go through the wilderness, they start to grumble and complain, right? There's this passage in Numbers where they, they start getting upset with having manna and quail day after day, of having to, to, to be given their daily provisions day after day, having to be dependent upon God, having the, not, not being able to be independent as a people, but being dependent on a God who provided for them day after day. And you know what it did? It, it planted the seeds of discontent in their heart. That grew the sense of, uh, of discouragement, and discouragement led to being miserable, and, and in their miserable moods, they take out their anger on God. They start complaining, grumbling, why have you brought us out of Egypt? Which, by the way, they should be saying, why have you brought us out of slavery in Egypt? But they conveniently leave that part out. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? The text in Numbers says, we loathe this worthless food which you have given us. I mean, you could think of other descriptive words there, right? Maybe we're getting tired of manna and quail. I'm not trying to justify their statements here, by the way, but I'm just trying to make the point. They've got some very descriptive words, some very hateful and angry words. that They loathe this food that God has provided for them. They call it worthless. Worthless? Really? It's keeping them alive. It's keeping them living in the freedom of the wilderness and not chained to their, their, the Egyptian slave masters and taskmasters. How quick were they to forget how good they have it and where they've come from? How nasty they were to God who rescued them from slavery. See, the people of God, they, they weren't just discontent. They were hateful. They were angry at God. They, they, they had lost perspective. Right? And, and, I mean, let's be, I'll, I'll be the first to confess. I think any of us could confess. We've been there. We are there, right? We allow our discontent to make us lose sight of who God is and what he's been doing in our lives and where he's leading us. And so we allow that discontent to, to, to plant seeds of bitterness in our soul. And so, do we have an intimacy with God in that moment? No, we instead, we, we have a little bit of resentment toward God. The reality is, God's never left us. He's never walked away, right? Here in Israel's story, as they are, are filled with anger and they're taking out their anger on God, God says, okay, all right, have it your way. He steps back for a minute, lets them go their path. And these, these serpents, uh, they, they get attacked by these fiery serpents in their camp, and people are dying from, from these poisonous snake bites. And, and, and Israel realizes, man, we really were depending on God. We needed him to guard us and protect us. He was more than just someone to, to, to kind of give us manna and quail. He was our provider, our protector. He was our guide. He, we need him. Right? And so Israel comes back to Moses and says, Moses, Moses, forgive us. We've, we've sinned against God. Help us. Ask God to forgive us and give us help. The one, one commentator I read on this passage said that when a, a person's heart is intent on rebellion and beset by discontent, nothing will fully satisfy until the heart is made right. See, Nothing 
that God, like no response from God towards Israel in that moment would have made them content, would have satisfied the hunger in their heart. Why? Because it wasn't God's actions that kept, from them, kept them from contentment. It was the state of their own heart. It was the brokenness that was within. Only when their heart was made right did they see who God was and is. See, the people turned their backs on God and, and were immediately faced with a reminder of their need for him. And so mercifully, God forgives them and provides for Israel again. He rescues Israel again. This is a story, this is a narrative that unfolds numerous times throughout the Old Testament. If you read the history of Israel, time and again, God rescues Israel, then, and Israel celebrates God, is yay God, like enjoys the gifts of the blessings of God. Time goes by, they grow discontent, they grow bitter and angry toward God, they move off into chasing after other things, and then when they realize the, 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 the error of their ways, they come back to God, and God is gracious to rescue them again and receive them back into his arms. And so what God does here in Numbers is he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and hold it up for all to see, and any who look to the serpent on the pole will be saved. See, the people's obedience to God's word was their faith. Because any of those who looked upon the serpent on the pole were healed that day. This is not some magic trick. This is God stepping in and revealing himself to his people as the rescuer and the redeemer that he was. Right? And so God gives them this command, look to the serpent and you will be saved. And so as they do, as they obey God's word, they are healed and we see their faith in action. Faith is not just some, some, some feeling on the inside of us. It's tangible. It's visible. As we believe in God's way as being right and true and live in accordance with that belief. So our text in John chapter 3 tells us, As Moses lifted up the serpent, and all who looked upon it were saved, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will be saved. This is the mission. This is, this is what Jesus has been sent with. Jesus has been sent on this mission to go and seek and to save the lost, the lost children of God. And so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will be saved. See, there's this connection in the scriptures between uh, this idea of looking to and believing, Right? For the people of the Old Testament, they had to physically look up to the serpent that, that had been lifted up. And again, this act of obeying God and looking at the serpent was saying, yeah, we believe you, God. We believe that, that you're our rescuer and the provider of life. And, and so believing on the Son of Man lifted up on the cross is choosing in our soul the path of life in God alone. It's looking to Jesus and saying, yes, God, we believe you. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He's the only one that can atone for our sins. He's the only one that can provide new life through his death and resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and life. We say yes to all these things. That's what it means to look to Jesus, look to the son of man, lift it up on, on the cross. See, I think it's important for us to understand not just that the, the mission that Jesus was sent with, but the fact that he was sent by the Father. 
And, and as, we, as we explore this part of the text, we understand a bit more about what that purpose was. Not only is God love, not only is he missional and reaching out to us, but he's a rescuer, he's a redeemer. See, the very purpose for which Jesus was sent to die was to give life to all those who've looked upon Jesus with faith. In John chapter 12, while talking to his disciples of, of his impending death, Jesus tells them this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the Son of Man to be exalted, to be lifted up. He's talking about the cross, but he's also talking about the, the manner in which him being lifted up on the cross would be glorified. You'd see the glory of God in his death on the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Church, this is like biology 101, right? I mean, we don't have to get too philosophical here. This is not what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, what came first, the wheat or the wheat uh, seed. This is, this is a moment where, where we realize the seed you have from wheat comes from the plant of the wheat. Like, it, it, a plant that has died has given us seed, seed that we plant in the ground so that more plants, more, more, more of a harvest of wheat can grow up, Right? Jesus' point is that his death was the beginning of the new life. His, his death was necessary so that as he, the Son of Man and the Son of God, dies, the, the, his death planted in the ground would create such a harvest of new life, a, a, a new, new strain of wheat that doesn't provide uh, people that need to eat gluten-free, but rather people that can live in this new life that Jesus provides, Right? Paul speaks of, uh, of, of Jesus being the first fruits of, of those who have died. See, God's purpose in sending Jesus was not just to die for us, not just to, 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 to make a way for us to be forgiven, but to reveal something of God's character, namely that God is a rescuer. You want clarity on what the mission was? It's that God has sent Jesus to rescue his children, his lost children. Our passage in John 3 ends with these verses, in verses 17 to 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we have, we're talking about a choice here, right? We're talking about a situation where, where, where there is before us condemnation or salvation. Judgment towards salvation or judgment towards condemnation, judgment towards the light or judgment toward the darkness. But, but the thing about all of this is that, that salvation and condemnation are two different sides of the same coin. We can't have salvation without the possibility of condemnation, right? I mean, salvation doesn't exist unless there is something from which we must be saved. 
The Audubon here in Fairfield has some great trails to hike on, which I'm sure you can tell I hike on all the time. But if you haven't already explored them, I highly suggest they're, they're really beautiful, right? It's a great time to go for a hike. But here's the thing. They're a little bit tricky because they go in every which way. And they're not necessarily, it's not easy to find your way back to where you started from, right? I mean, it's an adventure for sure. And it's easy to get lost in there. But you walk on it long enough, either you'll find your way back or they'll probably send someone out looking for you. <laughs> anyway, the, the thing about these trails is that you get to a point in the trail and the trail splits. And you have to decide, do I want to go to the left or the right? If I go to the left, will that get me back to where I started? Or is it if I go to the right? And, and, and oftentimes you're left with this decision, left or right. See, I think many of us see life like that. That, that we come to this fork in the road and we choose left toward condemnation or right towards salvation. Right towards the, the, the gift that God is extending towards us or left towards darkness and evil. But I don't think that's how reality really works. Unfortunately, I think reality is less hopeful than we have a choice to make in front of us that, that, change, that, that will really determine which path we go down. See, in verse 18, uh, Jesus tells, or John tells us that whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. See, in Romans, Paul puts it differently. He's saying that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we're actually all starting off on the path called condemned. In the Audubon, they have different names for their, their, tra- their paths. One's like uh, the, the, the pond or stinky pond or something like that, right? I can't remember. It's, it's got fun names for them. Like, oh, no, there's a trail that, that has like uh, the sense of out, outdoors. So they've got like different pine trees, not stinky pond, uh, <laughs> like, you know, like fir trees and things like that. So you can go around and you like smell the different smells of the forest, right? That's what it was. Anyway, so they've got names of their trails. We all start off on a trail in life called condemned, right? And that explains why the, the, the evil you experience in this world, it, you should be experiencing in this world because we're all walking this path called condemned. We're not coming to a fork in the trail where we choose, do I want to choose a condemned life or the saved life? Listen, if that were true, if there was truly a, a sign in life that said, hey, you got to go left or right, left is condemned, right is, is salvation, I mean, come on, we're all going to choose salvation, right? I mean, probably not, but I mean, that it would seem logical, right? But, but the fact of the matter is that none of us are approaching this point and saying, mm, which do I want? Do I want condemnation or do I want salvation? We're all on the same path. We start off on this path of condemnation. We've, we've been born into this world that has chosen to turn our backs on God. And so it's not a matter of choosing condemnation or, or salvation. We've already been condemned. We're, we've all sinned and we've all already fallen short of the glory of God. The only hope we have is God being a God of love, being a God of, of who, who is on mission, a God who is a rescuer, who might send his son to come to this earth to be the, the, the perfect human atonement for our sins as the son of God and to make a way for us to, to, to accept this invitation to follow Jesus on this path of salvation, to get off the path we're already on and to follow him in the way. See, God's desire is to rescue us from this hopeless trail of life called condemnation 
and to offer us a new trail to follow him down. This is who our God is. He's a rescuer. He intervenes in this life. He makes a way if we will open our eyes and open our hearts to the invitation he extends to us through Jesus Christ. So it's more than just having this chance to be forgiven at Easter. It's a chance to know who God fully is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God is love. God is missional. And God is a rescuer. See, Easter, Passion Week, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, these are our best opportunities in this world to know the heart of God. Church, don't let this time in our our season go by too quickly without taking the time to think on these things. (coughs) Excuse me. That's the the holy, uh, anyway. God is not a hateful God. God is not an exclusive God. He's a loving God. Right? He loves us. And I know it seems hard to believe. Maybe we have a hard time believing ourselves. But thank God that, that, that it's not dependent upon what we believe about ourselves, but what he believes about us. Because it comes from the very heart of God. God is a loving God. He's not hateful or exclusive. He's got love that's big enough and broad enough to embrace all those people in the world who would embrace him back. God is a God who desires our trust in him and our willingness to accept the gift he presents to us in Jesus Christ, his love and his rescue. See, this week, I I, I hope you'll consider the nature and the character of our God. I hope you'll consider the the nature and the character of our king who, who sent forth his only son out of his own character, right? He sent himself and not just uh, like this, this piece of him, but the very nature and character of his soul. Jesus only ever said and did what the Father said and did. I hope you come to know him at Easter. That, that he's a God whose character is love, who's on a mission to save the world and, and to rescue us from condemnation. And so as I close our time in John chapter 3 this morning, I want to pray Paul's words for us. See, Paul writes this beautiful prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and as I, as I prepare to, to pray, I want to invite Nina and, and Janice to come back up and, um, and be up here with me. But I'm going to pray, and I'm actually going to pray through these words twice. And the reason why is I want you to really hear these words that Paul's written as, as our prayer for you and for me. That you might really consider the invitation to know God in the way that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3. So, so I'm going to pray the verse through twice before I close us. So would you bow your heads with me? Paul tells us this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God, I pray these words for our church. Just as Paul prayed them for the people of Ephesians, I pray these words for us here. That, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that your son Jesus may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love, in, in your love, Father, that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. May we have that knowledge of you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we close out our time. So this is a new song, I think, right? Okay. Um, so we're just going to sing the chorus one time, if that's okay, before we actually sing the song for real, for real. Thanks. Um, it's very simple, but it just, I think, piggybacks off of what Pastor Dan preached on, that, like, the song is called What He's Done, and it's talking about what Jesus has done and what that sacrifice looked like but um yeah so the chorus goes what he's done what he's done all the glory and the honor to the sun my sins are forgiven my future is Verse one. See on the hill of Calvary, my Savior bled for me. My Jesus set me free. Look at the wounds that give me life. Grace flowing from His side. No greater sacrifice. What He's done. What He's done. the free. 
seated for a moment. We've got a, a few things we wanted to share with you. Uh, I'm actually a little bit nervous about this one because oftentimes it's a test to give Doug the microphone. But we've got the Go Conference coming up and uh, I'm excited for it. I think Doug is even more excited. So I want to give the mic to Doug to, uh, to share some, some thoughts. Okay. You all saw it. He willingly gave me the microphone <laughs> there. So... I didn't, I didn't take it from him, he just passed it to me. All right, so in three weeks we have the missions conference, so that's pretty exciting. So if you're new to our church, that's a time where we really uh, turn our focus towards missions. You may be here conference and you think Holiday Inn and bagels. No, it'll be right here at Trinity. We might get some bagels, uh, but it will be here at Trinity. Um, so in terms of the schedule of events, that's what I really wanna go over today. Um, if you're from the new school, the schedule of events will be in the app so you can follow along on your phones. If you're from the old school, like me, we will actually have the schedule of events on a piece of paper um, like this. All right, nice piece of paper. You can pick that up on your way out of the church today um, in the uh, lobby at the uh, info booth. Um, and if you're from the real old school, like my dad, um, you can actually go ahead and just write the entire conference um, information on your arm or your hand using semi-permanent black or blue ink. Um, you can do that, but I wouldn't advise it. It kind of makes a mess after a while, I think. Um, but um, to each his own. All right, so the theme this year is the changing face of missions. Missions has changed a ton um, over the last few years, in part due to the pandemic. And we'll be joined by a couple of our missionaries that really highlight that. The first Sunday, uh, we'll be joined by Tim and Bethany Spears. And the second, by Rick and Mila Berry. Um, so really excited to hear what they have to share on that because they really highlight ways that missions has changed considerably. Uh, so what are the dates of the conference? Uh, so um, April 23rd uh, through May 1st. Now you say to me, wait a second, I have a calendar on me. And April 23rd is a Saturday. Normally, Missions Conference starts on a Sunday. And that's correct. Uh, but we are going to kick it off this year with a day devoted to prayer. So April 23rd on Saturday from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., we want to be in prayer for missions collectively as a church. Now you say, wait a second. I don't know about praying for six hours straight. And I don't know too many people other than maybe Rudy, my brother, who would want to pray for six hours straight. So what we are asking is for people to commit to praying for 15 minutes. 15 minutes. That's 24 people in our church to pray for missions. We can do that. 
So it's going to be more like a relay race. I pray from 8 to 8.15. Pastor Dan prays 8.15 to 8.30. And I think it's powerful for our church to be in prayer for missions for six hours. So we also have a sign-up sheet for that um, out front, same area. Um, I'm less concerned about the actual time windows. I just want to get everybody's email address. Uh, because if you can't come and pray here in person... And if you can, by the way, that'll be really powerful because we'll have cool stuff up on the screen. I went last year. It was amazing. Uh, but if you can't come, then I can email you out the prayer requests for all of our missionaries so you can pray for them um, at home or in the car or wherever. Okay. So other things I wanted to highlight quickly. Uh, so on Monday um, of the Missions Week, we are going to have our Hope Line tour. Uh, we went last year. It was amazing. Uh, we want to go back this year. Uh, and in part, we're going to go back because it's Nina's last year at Hopeline. Uh, Nina, how oh, oh, hey, there you are. Wow. <laughs> like a ninja, you know, I just, I know where everything is. Uh, so, um, so how many years have you been at Hopeline? Four years. So, and that really, she really highlights, you know, again, changing face of missionaries, not just you know, sending out people, but also doing missions right here um, in Fairfield. So we want to celebrate that uh, time that she has devoted um, uh, and go back to Hopeline. So please consider joining us uh, for that. Uh, another thing to sign up. Uh, so on Tuesday, April 26th, uh, we're going to have a women's potluck brunch at 10 a.m. Uh, so again, sign up out in the lobby for that. Uh, also continue to have our other events throughout the week. Um, on Saturday, we're going to have the Wooly Beard Reveal. So next, yeah, next week, uh, we are going to announce the choices for the Wooly Beard. Uh, for those of you who remember, that was a big fundraiser we did last year uh, with Pastor Dan's face. Um, we're going to be doing it again. Um, Dan wanted me to let everybody know he is not going to tie-dye his eyebrows this year. All right. He did that last year. This is going to be this is some pastoral wisdom from the pulpit for anyone who was ever thinking of dyeing their eyebrows. Don't do it. Bad decision. All right. And then the last thing I want to draw your attention to is the final Sunday, May 1st. Um, we're going to close things out with a barbecue after the service. So bring your appetite. Uh, and that is all I have for now. All right, so Doug, just, just for funsies, like if people don't sign up for that 15-minute that slot, can you and I just start picking names randomly and like signing people up? And Yeah, okay, good. I'm in. <clears throat> so stay on my, my good side of me just in the next couple of weeks. Hey, uh, speaking of gathering together for prayer, just want to let you know April 6th, this Wednesday, we are going to be meeting downstairs in the patio room to pray together as one church. Pastor Moses has been leading this. He is, it's ongoing. They are He's currently meeting with a group on Wednesday evenings, and he's invited the whole church to join together to pray for the church as we look to the future and what God has for us and how we look to God to give us wisdom in how to be the people of God in this day and age. So um, it's going to be from, I believe, uh, 7, oh, don't have the time out there, 7, uh, it's, check the app, the website, uh, it's in the evening, 7, I think, to 7 to 8 or 7.30 to 8.30, but uh, it, it is a great time. I'm going to be there. I hope you will join us. A very important time for us to come together this Wednesday evening to pray. Also, what's that? It's 7.30, thank you. Oh, Nina, you're there. Where did you come from? 
uh, 7.30. Uh, also, we want to let you know that there are, um, we also have next Sunday is our brunch together. It's a great time for us to come together for fellowship. It's not just free food. It is genuinely a time where I believe God is working in knitting our hearts together in Christ. So yes, we share a meal. Yes, we share laughter. But more so, we're building relationships with one another that I think God can use for his kingdom. So I hope you'll join us for that. And then lastly, I just want to mention that, uh, oh, actually one more thing, sorry. The, uh, uh, on the week of Easter, on Thursday evening, we'll be having a service of shadows here, which is a special time where we kind of take the, the time to quietly prepare our hearts for what would happen on Friday, walking alongside Jesus and his disciples in preparation for Christ's crucifixion as we look to Sunday in his resurrection. So I hope you'll join us for that, 7 p.m. on April 14th. Church, let me close with these words for us. Would you stand as we close with this benediction? I pray you, you genuinely hear Paul's prayer for you and for me, that we would come to know God, know him as loving, know him as a God who is missional and who is reaching out to, to save his people, his lost children. So hear Paul's prayer that you would know God in this way. Church, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, God's love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go in peace.